0: Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham. You can check us and other podcasts out at reformpodcast.com. And kind of as a side note with the Society, um, the Reformed Brotherhood, who is one of the podcasts in the Society, just had Brandon Adams on their show um, to discuss 16 federalism, and they are Presbyterian. So that actually, I think, would make for good discussion. So go check them out at at reformpodcast.com. You can also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net, and if you're watching on our YouTube channel and haven't subscribed, hit the subscribe button to be and hit the bell as well to be notified of any new videos that we put out. So today we are finishing an Orthodox Catechism. I'm actually, show it here. There we go. We are in chapter twelve, which is the last chapter of the book. We've been going through. How long have we been going through this, Sean? Like a oh. maybe a year, off and on.
1: I don't think it's been quite a year, but it's definitely, it's been a while.
0: Okay. I mean, it's, it feels like a long time. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, we've actually passed our two-year anniversary for the podcast. It's back in May. So we've been at this for a while. But yeah, we're um, we're finishing up the Orth- In Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. Um, and the last chapter is focusing on two ecumenical creeds of the Church, the Nicene and Athanasian creeds um ecumenical simply referring to um a a conglomerate of or, or, you know sean i'm trying to trying to think of here it's kind of like the okay. the churches come together as a whole and they consent yeah. on doctrine in this case that's what ecumenical means it would they're be affirmed by the universal church
1: yeah it would be church-wide um yeah. multiple congregations have sent their representatives um, at, le- at least in the case of the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, not exactly sure how that came about, but it's it's widely regarded within the church as um, this is this is a true statement about what the faith is.
0: Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, that's very helpful. So that um, that can also speak to the the creeds authorities and their credibility when you have a church wide consensus as it relates to the doctrine. That doesn't mean that everybody who claim the name of Christ necessarily agreed with the creeds, but by and large, it was accepted as biblical truth and, and authoritative. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So when, I, we, when we're going to, Oh, go ahead, Sean. Yeah. Go I ahead. was
1: going to say, uh, cause oftentimes you'll run into people that might disagree with some minor piece of wording with, with the creed. And we're not necessarily kicking them out of the kingdom for that. Uh, right. But uh, in general, these are widely regarded as um, as containing orthodox statements uh, within them, as being uh, as being true statements about uh, what the scriptures teach.
0: Yep, yep, that's a very helpful clarification. Um, so our discussion today is really going to focus on um, just the creedal language in general. We're not going to get too much into exegesis, and that's, um, not to say that exegesis isn't important, um, but our focus is really talking about the creeds themselves. We've done exegetical in-depth exegetical discussions around the doctrine of God. I would encourage, if you haven't listened already, go listen to our episode, Aquinas and Biblical Christianity, where we do an in-depth um, study of the doctrine of God. Um, and we do do a, quite a bit of exegesis in there. Um, lest anyone come back and be like, well, you guys are just using metaphysical and or philosophical language, and you're not using scripture. Uh, we believe scripture is our final authority of faith and practice, and that these creeds are helpful in summarizing the Christian faith in aspects of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but our discussion today is really not meant to be um, focus on exegesis. It's really more to discuss the language and implications of the confession or of these confessions. So, I just want to put that up front. Um, so a little bit of history behind these creeds. So, the Nicene Creed is listed first in this edition. Um, the Nicene Creed really comes out of theology taught at the Council of Nicaea. The creed itself wasn't formulated at the Council of Nicaea. Excuse me, it came later. Um, I think it it may have been formulated at the Council of Constantinople, which uh, I think was in the fourth century, um, but it was not during uh, the Nicene Creed, you have to understand that Nicene theology really developed over time. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't that all of these things were codified in Nicaea and then everybody just had all these things together. And then the creed was formulated. No, there was a working out of these things um, in the greater implications of them over time. Um, You see this with the Cappadocian fathers like Gregory of Nyssa, um, I don't know if Athanasius would have been a Cappadocian father, um, but there were fathers who did work these things out, in, especially in defense of, uh, of the equality of the son to the father um, against Arianism, which was really the topic of uh, the Council of Nicaea, was to uh, defend biblical Christianity against Arianism, which taught that the son was a lesser being uh, than the father. Not quite human, as we are necessarily, but um, definitely creature, definitely created, not of the essence of the father, not the same as the father in his essence. Um, so this was really a defense against that. Um, so it's important to, it does help to understand some of the history surrounding these creeds as we discuss them. Um, and these really came out of controversies. Um, and this seems to be where the church Really seems to come together historically and is the strongest is when controversy happens. That doesn't mean they're, they're out looking for controversy necessarily. We should be out um, just causing all kinds of problems. Um, but when controversy arose, like with Arius, there is this need for unity um, even. And I think that it was Constantine that really issued that this council be put together. Um, and from his perspective, theological was probably not on his, uh, his top priority. It was really, I think to unify his kingdom, there was division going on in his kingdom. I was like, yeah. all right, guys, we gotta, we gotta unify everybody here. Let's get this yeah. council together and get this dealt with.
1: Yeah. I'm not even sure he necessarily cared the out about the outcome one way or another, as much as, uh, we need to have some unity here. Um, And that brings us into an interesting point about the creeds, Um, even if they're called under less than um, the best circumstances, like I would not say that uh, a secular ruler has the authority to call churches together to um, decide on a matter. Regardless of how it was put together, we do still believe that they contain orthodox statements, um, and those are useful in that regard.
0: Yep. Yep. No, that's a good point. God works in spite of men's desires, right? Mm-hmm. And He uses their their desires and and whatever agendas that they might have to His own purposes. Um, and I and that might even speak to the authenticity of Constantine's confession because you know he confessed to be a Christian. He saw this symbol in the sky, if if I remember the story correctly, and he had him mm-hmm. put it on all his men's shields and mm-hmm. um, as a I think it was as a way to protect them. And from then on, he went to establish Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. But uh, it's hard to say whether he had an authentic um, conversion. Yeah, but this there's, this certainly is indicative that he may not have.
1: There's there's some troubling things like he's he was because there was a belief in the early church that you should wait as long as possible to be baptized. Um, with, with sort of underpinning of this was the idea is like once you're baptized that covers all your previous sins, but after that your sins are um, you're all, they're on you. You've got to deal with them, sort of deal. Which obviously we would th- we would say that's that's horrendous and unbiblical and, and soul damning. Yeah. Um, it appears that he might have been under that sway because he was he delayed his baptism until his deathbed essentially. So. so I would question what it was the gospel that he had. Although I'll be honest, I've never like took the time to actually look into it very clearly. So I, I could be mistaken, but my general sense is he probably wasn't an actual Christian.
0: Yeah. And if you you know, if you are waiting that long, I mean, it it's a problem because it is commanded, right? And it's like yeah. if you're not obeying christ's command you're just you're deliberately putting it off for no good reason
1: (laughs) yeah you're you're deliberately putting it off because you're worried about sin um which right which should be
0: dealt with already right (laughs) yeah you you should
1: run to christ to deal with your sins you should yes withhold being with christ um because of sin that's not that's not correct
0: yes exactly right so it's interesting to study you know the historical backgrounds um there's a really good book that I'm in the middle of now that can be helpful. Um, I think it's called The Nicene Faith. Um, it's a very long book, but it brings out a lot of the historical context and even dives into the beliefs of different church fathers and even Arius and and I think can be helpful for some of the historical background. Historical theology, I love, uh, I love studying. That's one of my favorite um, fields um, to dive into, seeing what the church believed and how they worked through these different controversies. What did men say about particular things? It's, it's fascinating. Um, but these creeds didn't just pop up in a vacuum. There were real historical contexts that drove um, the creation of these creeds. Um, now, with the Athanasian Creed, we don't have as much information um, on that creed. It's possibly a fourth century document, um, and probably not written by Athanasius, it was ascribed to him for a very long time. I think it was believed that he wrote it, but um, I think with more recent scholarship, it was probably it was shown as probably didn't write it. Um, yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, I didn't have it. Oh, I
0: thought you were going to say something. Um, but he he probably didn't write it. Um, but it seems that it was given. It was a fourth century document, and it does encapsulate really in essence the teaching of Nicaea. It probably came up around the, it seems to have come up around the time that he, or that Athanasius was alive and writing and that the Arian controversy was still going on. So again, the historical context here kind of brings into this, um, you know, informs where these creeds kind of sprang from. Um, one thing that's interesting as I was researching this creed, um, this creed is not accepted by the Eastern church. Uh, it's, it's accepted by the Western church. And it's also rejected by the Anglican Church um, for its strong stance, um, I think, on its exclusivity. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. And so, it's the creed is rejected by the Anglican Church, um, which is interesting, given the Anglican Church really historically has followed in the footsteps of the Reformed, um, albeit some differences. But the general Reformed Calvinistic understanding of doctrine has been there, but um it it's rejected by them
1: um, now uh i don't know if you know this or not dan do you know has it always been rejected by the anglican church or is that more of a recent thing because that i
0: don't know and i and i was thinking along those lines as yeah. i was saying this it might be a more recent thing because the anglican church now is not what it used to be back in yeah. the 16th century. well uh, in spite of king henry the eighth's um foolish desires to start it but it, I, it, there was much orthodoxy in the Anglican church mm-hmm. early on.
1: Well, the, the point I was going to bring up is um, it seems that social Trinitarianism is rampant in Anglican circles. Uh, mm. Maybe that's not quite. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I haven't seen like statistics saying uh, who's uh social Trinitarian, who's not. But um, it, it, at least from my experience, what I've seen, it does seem to be somewhat common that you would see. A social trinitarians within their ranks and as we'll read through i don't think a social trinitarian could affirm the athanasian creed at all it's, it's no oh, to, yeah no. exactly um, yeah so that might be one of the reasons why it was swept away if it was if it was swept away i don't know
0: yeah because i can imagine that the the early anglican church would have probably held to yeah i would think understanding. so understanding yeah i would think so that would make more sense um, and another thing that's interesting to note as it relates to the catechism, um, it's interesting that these two creeds show up in this catechism that Hercules Collins made, um, because the particular Baptists had their own controversies surrounding, you know, doctrine of God with Thomas Collier. And I think we've I've written an article on that on our blog, and I think um, um, we might have talked about that on the show before, but Collier really was more of a he would fall into the more Aryan camp. He did seem to believe that Christ was creature, um, that there was something less than God in him, that he was not uh, he was not God in the sense that the, the church has historically believed. Um, and so I think we can see that there is this emphasis on staying with the church universal in terms of doctrine and not deviating. This is who we are. We're confessing these things. Staying away from these, and it even says at the beginning, um, he, he wrote this catechism to help avoid heresy. He said, "Published for preventing the canker and poison of heresy and error." Okay, so I think that these things are probably fresh in his mind as he's, and this isn't long after that happened. I, what was this, the 1690s, Sean? What was it? Something I remember like that. Now, um, I think it is the 1690s that this came out. Um, so it, it wouldn't have been very long after um, that, if, if indeed it did come after uh, that controversy. So it it's just interesting. Again, the historical context kind of informing what's going on here. All right, so we'll dive into, we're going to read the entire creeds. Well, we'll read the Nicene Creed, then talk about it. And then we'll read the Athanasian Creed and then talk about it. Um, so I'll go ahead and read the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both the things in heaven and the things on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate. He was made man. He suffered and arose the third day. He ascended into heaven. He shall come to judge both the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. Those who say there was a time when the Son was not, therefore he was begotten or has had his beginning of nothing or that he is of another substance or essence or that affirm him to be made or to be changeable and mutable. These the Catholic and apostolic fathers of God pronounce
1: accursed. Catholic and apostolic fathers, you said? Yeah. Oh, um, I have Catholic and apostolic churches here.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yep, that was, I read that wrong. Catholic and apostolic churches of God pronounce a curse. Thank you. (laughs) I think I just put, because typically when you say apostolic, you put apostolic father. Ah, gotcha, Um, gotcha. And I just read it into there. I think that's what happened, but Mm -hmm. thank you. Although and and just, what we mean by Catholic, just to be clear, we're, we're talking about the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church. This is long before the Roman Catholic Church uh, came into existence, or at least as and, we know it today.
1: And I will note, it's actually interesting, the language here, Catholic and Apostolic Churches, plural, yes. as opposed to Catholic and Apostolic Church, singular, um, showing hmm. what they thought of how the universal church was to be expressed, which is what we would agree with. We would agree that it's a uh, the universal church. Um, its visible manifestation is a in churches. It's not one singular church. Yep.
0: Yeah. So it seems there is an emphasis on the local church here as well. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't necessarily this understanding of a a broad hierarchy that then. Mm-hmm. Pushes down to everybody yeah. else, but in emphasis, these individual churches are coming together and saying that this is true.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, so we see very much a Nicene, uh, a Nicene understanding of God. We see a strong emphasis on the co-equality of the Son with the Father. Um, you know, this would flow naturally from teaching of Scripture that Jesus is the Great I Am. Right, Jesus invokes this in John chapter eight that before Abraham was I am. So he's what we would call this the Tetragrammaton. He's invoking this on himself. He's identifying himself with the Father, uh, the Father's essence. He's saying I am this this I am this being that was mentioned in Exodus three fourteen. Um, so he's this is very much keeping the unity of the Godhead by saying that Christ and the Father are the same essence. Um, while showing the distinction between um, the persons, and we see the the term begotten used here, right? And this is this term begotten is really the distinguishing matter between, uh, or what distinguishes between the father and the son, right? Uh, and and it's really done in a very odd way than what we would normally think of begottenness. Begotten typically, from a human perspective, refers to being born, right? You're being birthed, you're being made, you're coming forth from your parents, right? That's a, in in a very, in a nutshell, that's the understanding of begotten. But in this case, we have a distinction between being begotten and being made. It's a very clear distinction here Mm -hmm. um, between uh, the father and the son. And it's very clear. You, You see light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father. So begotten is being used in a very different way than what we would typically understand begotten to mean. Well, what this means is you, someone call this eternal generation um, or procession from the Father, right? He's proceeding from the Father eternally in a begotten state, right? So it's in the nature of the Son to be begotten. And this is that relative distinction that we're seeing here. This is what distinguishes the Son as the Son by virtue of the Father, and the Father as the Father by virtue of the Son. It's in the nature of a son to be begotten. And so he's begotten of the father and that distinguishes him from the Mm -hmm. father. Um, But it's done in a way because it's done in a relative way that doesn't divide the divine essence. So we can Mm -hmm. still say that God is simple. God is completely and absolutely unified. But um, there is this distinction between um, the persons. So this relational distinction uh, distinguishes but does not divide. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a very important uh, aspect of this.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and harping on that a little bit, it's interesting in the scriptures, we never see anything but relational distinctions that um, distinguish between the persons. Um, many people try to go beyond the relational distinctions and trying to make other distinctions within, um, within between the members of the day. And we wouldn't think that's appropriate. The only thing that uh, distinguishes them is their relative properties. No other property, because ultimately that that ends up creating multiple levels of deity or different deities, which we don't think would be. uh, We don't think the scriptures teach at all, Um, and going back to uh, the idea that this is born in controversy, it's very important to remember that this was born out of the, the Aryan controversy. And that's why there's such an emphasis on making um, the son equal to the father Mm -hmm. um, and thus, and thus uh, God, Um, because we know Jesus says, unless that you believe I am that I am, you will die in your sins. It is necessary to believe that Jesus, the Christ is God um, mm. or you will die in your sins that's fundamental to the faith and you can't um, you, you can't neglect that so um, this creed is very important as it's it's demonstrating no we we believe that Jesus is God equal to the father and we're going to explain what begotten means begotten doesn't mean created that he's somehow lesser than the father no begotten is a relational um, it's a relational begetting not a beginning yeah. of, uh, of uh substance or a temporal beginning or anything like that. Um, so this is an a important, uh, the creed is important in guarding against heresies that uh, would ultimately lead to uh, the damnation of um, one's soul.
0: Yep. Very, very true. And, and, you know, you talk about, um, you know, where you talk about begottenness, not creating like a starting point or there's no, um, there, there's nothing created out of this begottenness that's separate from the divine essence. You know, that this really goes back to the the biblical notion of immutability, right? Mm-hmm. This is why we refer to it as eternal begottenness or eternal generation, because we're not saying that Jesus is becoming or receiving something from the Father in a sequential way. You know, it's not like he's, the Father's giving him essence and then it takes, you know, 0.2 seconds to get to the Son and then he receives it mm-hmm. Um, We don't, that would imply change. I mean, Jesus is becoming something that he is not already. Uh Um, And then we've undermined uh, divine immutability, like we find in Malachi 3.14. And then God is creature, right? God, Uh Jesus would be really dependent upon um, the Father in a creaturely way. And since change is ascribed to him, he would be creaturely. Psalm 102, 26 through 27 makes this distinction between the one who remains, that would be God. And then us who change, we, we change like a garment, right? But he remains forever. There's this mm-hmm. clear distinction between cre- creation changing and God remaining the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very important um, aspect when we're talking about these things. And really, one of the things that undergirded Nicene Trinitarianism is that God cannot change and so these things must be in place in order to preserve that when we're talking about the relationship between the father and the son. And 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 it's easy for us to look back now, you know, over a thousand years later and say, well, yeah, they worked all this out and this means this. But they had to work these things out really in real time. You know, they had to sit down and go, OK, this we can use this terminology. We can we can use the term hypostasis. We can use the term homoousios, terms that weren't applied to God, really, I don't think, before that time, and certainly made people uncomfortable. Um, you know, wow, you're introducing this philosophical language? And that was one of Arius's um, problems. He didn't like homoousios. Well, that word's not in the Bible. Why are we using that? Um, so they had to really walk this fine line in, in working out these uh, these doctrines, being careful not to introduce man's philosophy, but also making sure that they're being consistent with scripture. How do we explain these things? No scripture says this, but how do we explain this in light of what Arius is saying? Um, So very important um, that we see that.
1: Yeah. It's, it's guarding two important scriptural truths that a Jesus is God fully God of himself and b that he's called the only begotten son. And Arius was taking one to the exclusion of the other not realizing that they're, they're harmonious when you understand the correctly as this, uh, as the creed lays out.
0: And even Arius believed in like divine simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of the he reasons did. he, he didn't like the, the understanding of the Trinity that was generally accepted. Hey, if we believe that God is one and you're saying that there are three, how can you say that God is, is one and three at the same time without dividing God? You know, it, He didn't understand the relational distinctions and how that doesn't divide, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it, he held to some orthodox concepts. He just took them in a way that was not, uh, his conclusions were false. Um, so it, again, it's important. These things are, are very, um, are very important to understand. And, and that's why it takes that you have to do the work. You have to work through these things, read and, and take the time to let these things settle. They're not easy concepts, but they are very important. All right. Athanasian Creed. You want to read this one, Sean?
1: Sure. All right. right. The Athanasian Creed. Whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, unless everyone do keep undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet are they not three eternals, but one eternal? Also, there is not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty. Yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet are they not three lords, but one Lord? For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none or before or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, said, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must think, must thus think of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting life that we also rightly believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the world, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God, perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. "...equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he be God and man, yet is not two, but one Christ, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God, One, one altogether, not by confusion of the substance, but by unity of the person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits on the right hand of God, the father almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and give an account for their own works. And them that have done good shall go into life everlasting. And them that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which everyone should believe faithfully.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. Definitely longer than the Nicene Creed.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: What's funny is, you, you know, towards the end there, when it talks about the incarnation, you see, you hear some of the same language you find in the Apostles' Creed.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, he ascended into heaven, yep. sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he shall come to the judge the living and the dead. That's very similar to what we've, you know, you see in the Apostles' Creed um creed as it relates to Christ. So you see gospel language being sprinkled yeah. uh, even in in these creeds. Yeah, um, which
1: specifically for this creed you basically have to have because it's saying um whoever would be saved needs to to believe all these yeah. things. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Um and if you if it was just the doctrine of God and not the gospel in here, then uh, it would be incomplete. Um but it does get to the gospel. It's not as uh, thorough about it as it is the sections on the doctrine of god on the on the trinity but it is still there
0: yeah yeah it it really um and that's a point i I wanted to bring out was that this creed does not separate the gospel with the doctrine of god um they're not seen as separate entities they are seen as both imperative for salvation and i would agree that there is um you know even though with not everybody is going to have the same level of knowledge of the doctrine of god or who god is there are definitely some aspects of the doctrine of god that have to be believed in order to be saved like we we quoted john earlier where jesus or talks about where jesus said that unless you believe i am you will die in your sins um so they had to believe at least that he was god and that uh, he was one with the Father. So there are some implications there that have to be held to in order to be saved. You can't deny them. You can't say, well, you know, Jesus was not really God. Uh, you're not a Christian if you, if, you yeah. conf- if you really believe that. If you confess that, you're not a Christian. Um, so the doctrine of God is very important as it relates to salvation um, because the God who gave that gospel and, and the God of that gospel is the great I am. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus's incarnation is intrical intrical to the gospel. I mean, his death it pl- has so many implications that flow from this uh, incarnation. His His deity was needed to take on an eternal punishment. His body had to break in order to uh, really take our place because the punishment for sin. Uh, was not for God, it was for humans. So he had to become like us in order to fulfill the law and not only for his with his death, but with his perfect life. and that had to be done with a human, uh, a human person or human body, I should say. And you can see that there is there's all these implications that come into play when we're talking about God and, and Christ and the Incarnation. They all have to do with the gospel. Um, you can't say, well, I, I, don't believe this about Jesus over here, but then turn right around and say, well, I believe what mm-hmm. the gospel says about, you know, the, how we're saved and, and, uh, Jesus's work. It's mm-hmm. inconsistent at the very least. Um, so you have to be really careful.
1: Yeah. And, uh, part of the gospel is, is faith in Christ. You must believe in Christ. Yes. Right. And while none of us has a perfect conception of who Christ is, um, there are certain things that if you get wrong, it's obviously that you don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. For example, if you were to, um, if you, Dan were to say, Oh yeah, I, I saw your mother yesterday, Sean. She's a, um, she's a, uh, uh tall 50 foot, um, Asian woman from Mars. Like, I, I know you're not talking about your mo- my mother. I don't know what it is you're talking what? about there. Um, <laughs> If you, if you, uh, if you, but if you met my mother and you got a small factoid about her wrong, like, oh, she has uh, uh, blonde hair. It's like, well, or actually, oh, she has black hair. It's like, ah, actually, it's just a very dark, uh, dark brown there. Like, I could still say, oh, you're, you're, you're talking about my mother. You didn't meet my mother, but like, you're just, you're slightly wrong on the details. There's, there's a large difference there. And um, what this creed is trying to do is, is guard against the important issues uh uh, and accidentally uh, going into modalism or accidentally going into tritheism it's trying to protect against those two errors there
0: yeah and it's certainly echoing what we see in nicaea um this unity of the godhead and it even it goes out of its way to be very detailed and some like it the father's uncreated and then it also mentions the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then the Father is eternal, but so is the mm-hmm. Son and the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and they're, all of them are incomprehensible. It goes through these different attributes of God and equates each person of the Trinity with one of those things. You know, they are all these things. It's not that the Father has one thing that the Son does not um, in their essence. Um, it's emphasizing the absolute equality of these persons with one another and with the divine essence. Then um, it it's really I think to avoid that Aryan tendency towards separating the persons, as specifically the father and the son, um, and making a lesser being out of the son. It's just to emphasize that as much um, as possible. Um, and we also see um, that it's trying to avoid tritheism, right? So we see it it says so. Likewise, the father is Lord, the son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. So it's trying to balance these things. We're not saying there's three gods. We're, we have to be careful about that. We're saying that they are really distinct from one another. The father is not the son, etc. Mm-hmm. But we're not saying that we believe in three gods. That's to avoid tritheism, to emphasize mm-hmm. monotheism. And then it, it talks about later on the, those relative properties that we discussed, right? The Father is of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. And it's really laying out, here's the distinguishing factors between these persons, and this doesn't create a division in the Godhead. Um, so it's trying to trying to be as clear as possible um, while also being concise as being um, a creed. Another thing that's interesting, um, it says, And in this Trinity, none are before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. So there is no hierarchy of authority in the Trinity at all. <clears throat> and we we do see this as problematic today. We see things like EFS, eternal functional subordination, eras eternal relations of submission and authority um and and there might be some other um you know models out there but the end of the day they all see some sort of subordination usually it's of the son i don't think i've heard anything of the spirit but the son at least is discussed as being really subordinate to the father in some way just not Mm -hmm. in his essence but it might be relationally as you'll see with eras or functionally as you'll see with efs um problem with that is is it it seems to distinguish between a functionality or some sort of other relationship um as if it can be distinguished from the divine essence oh yeah jesus you know he can be functionally subordinate over here but that has nothing to do with who he is in his essence he's still equal to the father but we would if you are consistent though Divine simplicity teaches that there is this absolute unity of the Godhead. All the acts of God are God. And so if you say there is a real functional difference between the Father and the Son, where the Son is truly subordinate to the Father in that way, and you hold the simplicity, that means that there is some sort of ontological difference there. There is an ontological subordination, or you risk breaking up the Godhead by saying there's some functionality over here that isn't God or some relation over here that um, that isn't God. So you you create all these, all the implications are bad. Um, Not to mention the subordination aspect of it, which, you know, creates what leans toward Arianism. Um, So it, you can see how the creed is trying to avoid this, this language of submission in any way, just Mm -hmm. avoiding it entirely.
1: Mm -hmm. This, I like to go to, Um, or as I was reading through it, the spot I was focused on was um, in the third paragraph after talking about the persons. It says the glory equal. Their glory is all equal. There's not one who has the lesser or greater glory than another. Um, Their glory must all be equal because if they're God, glory is inherent to their being, to to who they are. Um, So their glory must be equal in any system that would distinguish between the glory of each person is is therefore wrong um, whether they intend to um, whether they intend to create a distinction and to say one is less God than the other uh, that is what they're doing um, going back to the, the one versus three lords because you have all these statements here there's not one eternal but there's or sorry there's not three eternals but there's one eternal there's not one or three incomprehensibles there's one incomprehensible. This is really to show that there's there's one divine essence that's shared among the three persons. So we're not talking about three separate things here. And I think that um, social Trinitarians are, and, and Tritheists, but social Trinitarianism, at least from my looking at it, seems to be a mild form of Tritheism, um, has a very hard time talking like this um, that there's, there's, there's really one Lord, but we know this is biblical. The, uh, the Bible does actually say, um, and this is, this is, uh, Matthew or not Matthew, Mark, uh, 1229. And Jesus is quoting the Shema and Jesus answered him. The first of all, the commandments is Hear o Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. So this is language we all we all have to be comfortable with. And if any of our listeners aren't comfortable with the language of saying that there's one Lord, not three Lords, um, I'd encourage them to, to study that and to think about what the scriptures are really saying when it comes to uh, to God's unity.
0: Yep. No, that's that's very true. And and then we see that in the paragraph about um, the hierarchy of submission. The unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. They were to be worshipped as one being. They were worshipped as a whole. You know, we're not worshipping the father and then the son is just kind of over here and we do something different with him. And then sons over here, they're to be worshipped in unity. They are the God of scripture, um, it, not composing it. There's not three parts of God. They just are God. Each one of them are God and we worship them together equally. Um give them equal glory we give them equal worship um and they have equal majesty it's really powerful language in this creed um and there's a lot of um a very helpful language in here that i think can help us to avoid falling into some of the pitfalls that are easy to fall into and in our in our limited human understanding we tend towards that because it's easier for us to grasp um instead of letting our you know sometimes just stopping and saying you know what I don't know how to explain that, but I'm not going to go any farther because that could be dangerous. Uh-huh. Um, if I do go farther, I'm going to end up in a place I shouldn't. Um, sometimes it's just best to, to to go a certain point and just say, I don't know. But we know scripture reveals us about God, and this is the necessary consequence of scripture, and we accept that, uh-huh. um, and we rest in that. Um, so, you know, with these creeds, and, and we're just doing a very broad summary. We're not doing like a line by line discussion, but um, with these creeds, it, it's good that we recover creeds, um, especially, um, I think, especially among the Reformed Baptists. We need to really dive back into this historical theology. We need to revisit our history. And this, not just our Baptist history, but church history in general. I mean, this is going back to the fourth century. This is um what 1700 years something like that ago um we need to we need to go back and see what did the church believe what are these things that they worked out what did what were the controversies surrounding these things um what is the historical understanding and what did the reformed receive them did our baptist forefathers receive them are they consistent with scripture you know we we really need to recover these things um it's too easy to just write off um these things as Greek philosophy or Aristotelianism or whatever it might be, um, we shouldn't do that. We should be willing to learn from the past. It doesn't mean that we see this these creeds as absolutely authoritative. We believe they're a secondary authority under Scripture, like all tradition is. We inform it with Scripture, and the tradition morphs with Scripture, not the other way around. Not like the Catholic Church would use they would use tradition in spite of scripture Uh, we see it as morphing with scripture Um, morphing under scripture i should say it it morphs scripture does not Um, that's really the historical view of tradition um, in among the orthodox and we we should understand these doctrines in light of that these creeds are helpful summaries of what we believe and there are men who Sacrificed much I mean Athanasius um, man you look at his life and some of the things he went through um, to stand for truth um, but he worked he God gave him grace to work through these things and to preach truth in spite of opposition um, and we can learn from these men who have gone before us and we should we should be willing to learn from them uh, regardless of if they're Roman Catholic um, or not we can uh, truth is truth wherever it's found. Uh, in spite of its source. Um, But I hope this has been a helpful discussion. I hope that the catechism has been a helpful discussion. Um, We've, I mean, we've made it through this. um, So I hope it's been helpful. Um, I'd encourage you to pick it up. If you haven't read it, um, it's sold by RBAP, Reformed Baptist Academic Press. Um, Dr. Richard Barcellus uh, heads that up. So go check that out. If you don't have us already, pick one up um, and it can be a very helpful resource. Um, We are planning on starting a new series, um, and I think we'll probably start next week. We're going to be going through the book of First Clement, um, which is a very early um, church um, document, Um, maybe probably the earliest one that we have um, outside of the Didache. I don't know which one would come first, but it's very, very early. Um, So we're going to be working our way through that. Um, I don't know how long that will be, but um, we'll just we'll figure that out as we go along, I guess, but hopefully that'll be beneficial. Again, more historical theology discussion. Um, And so hopefully we'll start that next week, but thank you everyone for joining us. Have a great Lord's day tomorrow, and we'll see you again on um, Saturday.